Um, so I'm Neil, and I'm here with my wife, Ruth, and our kids. Um, Grand Rapids is, uh, it feels like coming home to us. We lived here for five years, um, had two of our boys here, um, very, very much um, enjoyed and were blessed by being part of this church and being on the staff here. And um, it's a real privilege to be back. Um, what you can see on the screen now is where we are now. So we are back um, in our home country in the city of Oxford. Um, Oxford is a pretty amazing place. It's a university town. Um, and uh, as you can see from the architecture that I've put up in front of you here, um, I've been advised to use a different color this time, so we're going to try pink. Okay, you tell me whether this uh, works or not. There are lots of churches around here. Can you see this? Um, church, church. There's another one. This is Hartford College Chapel right here. This is Brazenose College Chapel just here. Um, this feels like it would be a good place to come and be a Christian, right? Yeah? Lots of churches. There's lots going on. Well, there's lots of wonderful Christian stuff going on in Oxford's history. Um, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, John Owen, Wycliffe, um, uh, Wesley, Tyndale, all sorts of characters who we would know, and maybe uh, we don't know how much we've been blessed by them, the work that they've done uh, for the gospel over the centuries. But today, um, Oxford is Richard Dawkins' town. Um, if you wanted to put a pin on the map to say where is the global center of atheistic secularism, I think we would have a pretty good shot at saying it should be where we live. Um, and in that place, God has uh, placed us and many other Christians as well, uh, just seeking to raise a flag for the gospel of Jesus and to try to contradict this narrative that Christianity is kind of medieval nonsense and that anyone with half a brain should just kind of uh, dispense with it. We don't believe this. We think that Jesus is just as relevant today as he was uh, through the years of all of those great Christian heroes of the past. Uh, and we want to try and introduce uh, undergraduates and graduate students to this. And so here's just a snapshot of kind of some of the stuff that's happening there. This is every Monday night during the university term. Don't tell anyone, but there's a group of 80 or 90 students meeting in the top floor of Starbucks right in the center of town to hear about Jesus Christ. Um, and it's not a, uh, a torrent, but it's a trickle of people becoming believers, people from flat-out atheistic backgrounds who have no clue what's going on uh, with the gospel when they arrive, who are uh, kind of bemused by the fact that there are any Christians in Oxford at all, thinking that the selection procedure should have kind of screened them out, right? Um, and yet, uh, Jesus is showing uh, that he is uh, just everything that he has promised, just as we sung. Um, and we're seeing lives change. So it's a huge privilege to be involved in this ministry. Um, we would love for you to find out more about it if you want to um, pick up one of these cards from the Connection Desk and you'll see a bit more about uh, what we do. And also, um, after the services next week, um, I think there is a, an opportunity to come and ask questions and find out more about it um, after both services. So, okay, today um, we are going on a journey together to Galatia, all right? Um, and for those of you who remember the, um, the days when we used to do this regularly together, this is going to be one of those services where there's a whole bunch of stuff coming at you, um, a whole load of context to absorb before we hopefully get some things certainly that have really messed with me. Um, but because it's going to be a way down the track 10 or 15 minutes before we actually get to our Bible passage, um, I wanted us to, um, in a minute, I'm going to have a stand and pray uh, rather than stand and read, and then we'll get to our Bible reading later. But before we do that, I just want you to consider in your heart um, maybe uh, where you stand with God this morning and where it is your dependence lies. And if you feel in your heart, kind of like this is church again, I would just love you to, um, as you get up out of your seats, leave that in your seat. 
um, and just step up, daring to believe again that God might really speak to you this morning. Um, these Bible passages have certainly really spoken to me. Um, I feel that they have something incredibly punchy and relevant to say to our world this morning. Um, but if we don't give God the chance to do that, we're not going to hear it. So as we stand to pray, let's leave those preconceptions behind and let's step into listening to what he might want to say to us today. Um, and my prayer is uh, that we'll go away changed. So let's stand to pray. Father in heaven, as a church, we entrust ourselves to you this morning, and we want to consciously step under your word, asking you to work in us by your spirit. We pray that you would please shine a light on what it is that we really trust in. Help us to see ourselves, Lord God, in the light of your gospel. Help us to see Jesus for who he is, and maybe not for what he's come to be in our culture, but what it is that he came to be, what it is that he still longs to be in each of our lives. And we pray that it might be for our good and for the good of those that we love and know, that we might be changed and transformed by him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So um, I'm going to show you just a few images. I'm going to read you some words here which are designed to uh, kind of transport you back into the first century. Um, so come with me on this kind of imaginative journey here a minute. Um, the first thing I want to show you is this image. Um, this is uh, a gentleman from Laconia in southern Greece standing at an altar and worshipping his God. You can see that because he's raising his right hand, right? Some things never change. And um, uh, if you look a little bit closer, though, you can see that he's doing something slightly peculiar with his left hand. Um, let's just zoom in here, just there. Do you see that gesture? Clenched fists, thumb wrapped over the fingers. This is something that you see again and again in depictions of ancient worship. Here's another one, very similar looking image. Do you see the, the funny gesture? Here's another one. Here are two people bringing offerings to their gods, and just down here, there it is again. What is this all about? In the ancient world, that gesture that I just showed you communicated something, like the raised hands communicate something. By making that gesture, people believed that they could bind the gods. They thought it gave them some kind of magical, coercive power. So the people in these images aren't just coming to their gods with thankfulness. They're not just coming with prayers for blessing. They're coming to the gods, believing that they can make them give them what they want. Let's go to another example now. This is an inscription, so I'm going to read it to you. It records the hopes of a man called Menandros as he makes an offering to the patron goddess of his hometown. Listen to what he says. Mistress, Menandros, the son of Demetrios, dedicates this offering to you as a first fruit, redeeming his vow and giving you thanks. Stand by him and protect his wealth. This guy, Menandros, is a farmer. And he's bringing the first fruits of his land to the goddess that he worships in fulfillment of a vow that he made, I guess, back at the beginning of the planting season. And he would have said something like this, if you bless my fields 
and you give me a good harvest, I'll record it on a stone so that people will know about it for generations to come. And when the harvest came, he followed through on that commitment. He commissioned that inscription. But did you hear the sting of the tail? He didn't just redeem his vow and give thanks, did he? No, he thought that he had hit the ball back into the goddess's court now. Stand by me, he says, and protect my wealth. Because he thinks he has a right to expect this now. He thinks his response to the goddess has put the goddess in his debt. He thinks she's obliged to bless him. But the gods didn't always deliver what their worshippers hoped, it seems. Let me read you one more inscription from a family tomb this time. It comes from northern Galatia. It was commissioned by bereaved parents, and it goes like this. The fates have seen the place which is always just and fixed the end of life as our portion. They have snatched away the finest bloom of beloved youth. Here may be seen the thankless thank offering of their wretched parents, a libation on the tomb for their children who died before their wedding days, first virgin Olympias, then Theseus, then a third end took away Amemptos. They lie here as a common family and the tomb has joined their remains together. Did you catch the tragic disillusionment in what it was they had inscribed? Like Menandros, they made all the necessary offerings. They loved their children. They prayed that the gods would keep them safe. And the next step in that dance was supposed to be thanks for favors received, right? If we can oblige the future to give us what we want, well, nothing can go wrong. But that wasn't what happened. And we can still feel their shattering sorrow 20 centuries later. Their children all died in a single year. Fate overtook them. The gods were powerless to do anything about it. Past offerings counted for nothing. Thankless thanks was all they were able to return. Brothers and sisters, welcome to Galatia. These glimpses of real lives, real hopes, real tragedies are glimpses into one of the most important places in the story of the Bible. Galatia in modern-day Turkey was the place where the good news about Jesus first exploded outward from Palestine and Syria into the wider world. And it provides the setting for one of the most foundational documents in the whole of the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And this is the place that we're headed this morning. And many of you, I guess, are going to know something about where Galatians fits into that wider story. The Apostle Paul planted churches here during his first missionary journey. This is sometime towards the end of the AD 40s. He traveled with Barnabas, and they visited four cities, Sidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. If we just zoom in here, we'll be able to show you where those are. So this is, we're going to go to kind of Google Earth mode here. This is the Mediterranean. We can just zoom right in on Asia Minor, modern Turkey. Get closer to it, and you can see Paul's route is something like this. Sidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Like that. Okay? So this is roughly where we are in the world. Still, that pink is not much better, is it? Oh, well. So these are the cities that Paul visited, but this was not the first time that he'd been there. What we read in Acts... Uh, tells us that um, maybe since his conversion about 15 years beforehand, Paul had actually lived in this southern 
region of modern-day Turkey. And as we watch the story of the first missionary journey unfold, we can see that he had not just been sitting on his hands while he'd been there. No, he'd learned the local languages, he'd read the local poets, he'd figured out how to get right underneath the skin of this very unchristian society. He'd listened his way into their world. And working by his spirit, God used all of this to make Paul an electrifying evangelist. This letter, Galatians, is actually the subject of my doctoral thesis, and it's amazing for me to discover how thoroughly Paul engaged with this world that his readers came from. He understood their religious background intimately, and it's woven through everything that he says. Paul met people who worshipped their gods with their thumbs clenched behind their back, making the special gesture. Paul met farmers like Menandros who believed that they could oblige their gods to give them the things that they thought they deserved. He met families who had had all their religious hopes disappointed. And into that world, he engaged people with something so different, it was like night and day. It was the gospel of Jesus. The truth that God doesn't love us or bless us because we can make him do it, but just because of who he is. So why the letter then? What may Paul write it? We'd love uh, to uh, say it was written just to encourage these new Christians and cheer them on along this journey that they have chosen, but sadly it wasn't. There were problems in this fledgling uh, set of churches that Paul had planted. There was a crisis in Galatia. You see, some new missionaries had arrived there. And on paper, that sounds like good news, doesn't it? These guys were Christians. They were Jewish Christians, probably from Jerusalem. And in theory, they were on the same team as Paul. They believed in Jesus. They wanted to see Christians strengthen. They wanted to see the church grow. Yes, they lived a very Jewish life. They kept the law. They circumcised their kids. But what wasn't to like about that? You know, Paul himself keeps the law when he's in Jerusalem, doesn't he? Paul circumcises his son in the faith, Timothy, just a few uh, uh, short months after this letter in all likelihood. And yet something about what these missionaries were doing in Galatia is making the wheels come off in a most spectacular way. Paul writes this letter, and it's, it's, kind of, it's more full of dire warnings than almost any other piece of uh, text in the New Testament. Why is that? Well, that's going to bring us to the passage that we're going to concentrate on this morning. So if you pick up your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4, I'm going to read you two sections from Paul's text, um, which I hope shed some light on this question. The second of which I'm sure you'll know. So the first one is Galatians 4, starting at verse 8 and reading to 11, and then I'm just going to read you Galatians 5 verse 1. Galatians 4, 8 goes like this. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. And then chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. 
This is God's word to us this morning, and I want you to be kind of alert to the fact that these passages sound a little bit odd. They're so familiar to us, but they don't seem to make any sense. Why does Paul use the word again so frequently in what we just read? The yoke the Galatians are tempted to be burdened by here is the Jewish law, isn't it? But these guys have never been Jews before. So how can they be burdened by it again? Sure, they may have known quite a lot about Judaism. There were Jews living in this part of the world in the first century, probably quite a lot of them. They had their own synagogues, they taught their own scriptures, and many local people got involved. There was a lot to like about hanging out with Jews. It was an ancient faith. It had a strong moral code. The whole taking one day off a week thing didn't hurt much either. But liking Judaism was a very different thing from going the whole way and changing your diet and rejecting your gods and getting circumcised. And that's what these new missionaries in Galatia were really offering. So what in the world does Paul mean by these enigmatic words? Why is he so concerned about his friends in Galatia returning to a pattern of behavior that they have never actually practiced before? Well, let me tell you what I think is going on here. Paul knows this culture, and he knows where these guys have come from, right? He's lived there. He knows the religious grammar that they grew up with. He knows that their friends and their families and their customs are all screaming this idea that if you only do the right things, you can get what it is that you want. And so when these Jewish Christians arrived, placing this big stress on keeping laws and getting circumcised, you can just imagine the Galatians taking a big sigh of relief and saying, finally, someone's telling us what we have to do now to keep our new God sweet. It's almost certain that the Jewish missionaries themselves did not intend this. For them, keeping the law was a way to respond to God's kindness. It was a way to say thank you. It was a way to say count us in. They didn't have to prove to God that he should choose them. They already thought they were chosen. But for the Galatian Christians who had this great big vacuum where all their religious duties used to be, it meant something completely different. Jewish law for these guys was like a new set of clothes that they could drape over the mannequin of their religious past. Circumcision was a new way to make that enduring statement. Here's what I've done for you, God. Now what are you going to do for me? And in the blink of an eye, beautiful, freeing, life-giving faith in Christ became the very thing from which these people had been rescued. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're returning to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? That's the underlying problem of this letter, whether they realized it or not. The Galatians embraced Judaism, but they were actually going back to paganism kind of through the back door. The Jewish law reawakened the mental habits of their non-Christian past, and Paul knew that those mental habits were spiritual poison. Now, I don't know about you, but as this underlying situation has become clear to me, some pennies have started dropping in my head and heart. I'm ashamed to say that previously this letter had seemed a little distant and a bit kind of obscure to me, warning me not to make an idol out of my quiet time, 
not to make too big a deal out of the fact that I go to church on Sunday. Well, I can kind of see that that's a, important, but is it really worth the, the, the kind of explosive pyrotechnics that Paul gives us in this text? But suddenly, now that I think I see what's happening, this letter has got right in my face and right in the face of the culture that I live in. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I just want to try and open that up to you as well. I want us to think a bit more about how God might want to shape us and challenge us today in the light of this ancient but actually amazingly urgent and accurate diagnosis of our situation and our times. First of all, I just want to put us in the shoes of those Jewish Christian missionaries for a minute. In the past, I guess I've just seen these guys as troublemakers, and there's an extent to which that's true. Clearly, they weren't any great friends of Paul. Their motives seem to have had more to do with rivalry and making up perceived deficiencies in Paul's ministry than a genuine partnership of any kind. Paul tells us later on in chapter 6 that they were preaching the law because they were ashamed of the cross and fearful of persecution. But even after all that is said, we still have a lot to learn from the way the problems they caused in Galatia came about. You might remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in Romans chapter 14, Paul speaks about the differences that exist in every church between the strong and the weak, between those who have robust gospel convictions and who want to live in the freedom that those convictions bring, and then on the other hand, those who have tender consciences, whose faith is easily damaged by other people running around like bulls in china shops, not understanding the impact of their actions on others. Now, in 1 Corinthians and Romans... The issue at stake is what Christians should or shouldn't eat. The strong Christians think it's okay to eat whatever they like because they know their identity is in Christ. It makes no difference whether they eat meat that's come from their own farm or whether they've bought it at some idol temple somewhere. It's what comes out of them that counts, not what goes in. But for the weak, this is a major problem. Because from where they're standing, they're desperately trying to leave their old pagan lives behind. And the last thing they need is any association at all with temples where they used to worship or foods that they used to eat there. And so Paul says to the strong guys, you have to moderate your behavior. I don't disagree with you. It really doesn't make any difference to you what you eat, fine. But if by eating you destroy one of your brothers and sisters in the process, that's as wrong as wrong could be, however right you are about the underlying principle of the thing. And do you see that's exactly what's happening here in Galatians? In this situation, our Jewish Christian missionaries are the strong. I doubt there was much clear theological water between them and Paul at all. Imagine if we'd run into these guys alongside Paul in some church in Jerusalem. I expect they've been barely indistinguishable, barely distinguishable. But the problem was what happened when they came to this place, to Galatia. Because they didn't respect the different backgrounds the Galatians came from. They didn't have a clue what it felt like to breathe the Galatian air or any understanding of what passed for normal in the Galatians' culture had no idea about the religious grammar that these people lived by or how deeply entrenched it was, how easily it could be reawakened by their enthusiastic presentation of the Jewish law. And so they breezed in, keen to help, doubtless with some good things to say, perhaps like uninvited guests at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting who were so struck by the depth and the pathos of uh, the uh, um, 
contributions of the people there as the discussion unfolds that they invite them out to the pub afterwards to continue the conversation. They didn't have any sensitivity at all to the weaknesses of their weaker brothers and sisters. They didn't seem to have even thought about it. And that thoughtlessness led to terrible damage. So this, I think, is the first big challenge that Galatians lays before us as a church this morning. Yes, it's true that each one of us is accountable before God for putting our own non-Christian lives, our own non-Christian motives to death. But there's no excuse for knowing each other so poorly that we actively hinder others as they try and do the same. Crossroads is a very diverse church. And there are people in this congregation from a huge variety of different backgrounds, so this isn't easy. But as far as it depends on us, we need to be thinking carefully about how to avoid placing unnecessary stumbling blocks in one another's paths. When Ruth and I first joined this church uh, nearly nine years ago, the first point of contact was a house church. Quite a few members of that group are still here. I've met some of them this morning. It's great to see you. And we still remember with great thankfulness the fact that the leaders of that group deliberately set aside time for every person to tell their story to the others. It was a great thing to do. The depth of the friendships that developed in that group began right there. And the friendships grew deep partly for this reason. If you know where people have come from, you have a fighting chance of caring for them in the present, don't you? If you understand their past. Paul wants us to understand that we have a pivotal role to play in one another's lives as believers. Christian fellowship brings us close to one another, close enough to do great good, but also close enough to do great harm. The situation in Galatia sadly shows us what that harm can look like very graphically. If we don't take time to listen and learn from the people we do our Christian lives with, we can hurt them terribly. But armed with this warning, And with God's Spirit enabling us, it doesn't have to be like that. But that's not all this letter has to say to us here in Grand Rapids today. Think again with me about that guy with the clenched hand, with the weird gesture that we met at the start. Think about Menandros, the farmer, and his offerings that he thought obliged the gods to bless him. Think about those poor parents who imagined their obedience had protected them from the tragedy of losing their kids. These people believed that by doing the right things, they could gain some degree of control over the future, that they could make it give them the things that they wanted. That all sounds terribly naive now, doesn't it? Terribly primitive. Making offerings and special gestures, no one does stuff like that anymore. But tell me, how different is it actually when I lay down my annual subscription on the counter at the gym? or when I pour out my efforts on my latest academic paper, or when I spend another evening finessing my Facebook profile, or when I deposit the latest instalment of cash in my 401k. Don't I also think that by doing these things, I am obtaining control over the future? Am I not also trying to make the secret gesture that obliges life to give me what I think I deserve? In fact, isn't our whole culture completely and intractably obsessed with achieving exactly what the Galatians were trying to achieve through their religious rites? And are we not equally adept at avoiding the terrible realization that none of it actually has the power to give us what we want? If Facebook doesn't give me the popularity I thought it guaranteed, I don't suddenly have an existential crisis about 
whether my devotion to it or to anything else makes sense, do I? I just ship in a new God, Instagram. If my latest blockbuster purchase doesn't quite deliver the sense of inner satisfaction, I thought it surely would. Well, the next one surely will. But isn't that just Galatian polytheism by another name? And if it is, then the warning of these passages is clear and pressing, isn't it? What parts of my walk with God now are just really new sets of clothes that I'm draping over the mannequin of my religious past or over the norms of my culture? We're going to go to the screen again here. I'm going to just put a couple of images up. See if we can get these going. This is a pig. (laughs) And if I dress this pig in a ball gown, it's still a pig. I'm reliably informed that this is a 1984 Pontiac Fiero. But if I dress this car in a rip-off Lamborghini body kit, it's still a 1984 Pontiac Fiero, and you'll find that out pretty quickly when you hit the accelerator, right? It may or may not be obvious, but it's what's happening under the surface that counts. For the Galatians, the exterior they were latching onto was Jewish Christianity. And for real Jewish Christians, that was no bad thing. But for the Galatians, living where they lived, coming from where they came from, that exterior became a kind of screen concealing and legitimizing everything they used to do and think under the surface. And my fear is that that's exactly what's happening to us. God beckons our hearts to long for him. But we respond with checklists of spiritual experiences that we think will stop him ever leaving us if we can just claim them as our own. Where's that coming from? It's not coming from the Bible. God urges us to entrust our future to his leading, knowing that he sees further than that we see and that he knows more than we know. But we respond by carefully assembling five-year plans that take all the unknowns out of the equation and labeling anything that doesn't fit in with that plan as some kind of lost time. Where's that coming from? It's not coming from the Bible. God has liberated us from slavery for freedom. But we respond by chaining ourselves up again with assumptions that God doesn't assume and inevitabilities that are completely uninevitable in his eyes. Where's that coming from? It's not coming from the Bible. You see, just like the Galatians, our lives are connected by elastic to the culture that surrounds us. We hear the gospel, but then we instantaneously reinterpret it according to habitual modes of thought that have nothing to do with the gospel at all. The gospel becomes our exterior, perhaps, but under the surface, the thing that's making it move is the thing that's always made it move. It's a scary thought, isn't it? But it's real. And Paul thinks this is worthy of the strongest warnings he knows how to write. Earlier in the letter, he famously contrasts faith and works. A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ, he says. And we think this is great news, because we have put our faith in Christ, and we're not wandering off into Jewish law like the Galatians were. But we're wrong. Because the thing that's getting Paul agitated here isn't Jewish law so much as what it was reawakening under the surface of his Galatian readers. 
The Galatians were certainly very excited about Judaism all of a sudden, but the problem was their motives, not the thing itself. The problem was that they were pursuing it with the same underlying hopes and expectations that were driving everyone who lived around them. And that applies with power and relevance to our lives today. Say I go down to the store and I pick up a copy of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Christians. I have no idea whether this book really exists. But let's say anyway that the author of it is a good and godly man, that the material is exegetically accurate, uh, that it's on the spot doctrinally. But there's still trouble here, isn't there? Because although seven habits of highly effective Christians sounds like great contextualization on the author's part, it's actually reawakening the logic of a culture that's walking away from God as fast as it can go. Seven habits of highly effective anything puts me right back in the place from which God saved me, right? A place where what I do is the thing that makes all the difference. The thing that delivers me from self-loathing and promises that I'll be highly effective and I do so want to be highly effective, especially if everybody notices. And so even as I go out into the week and put these exegetically accurate and doctrinally astute recommendations into practice, I'm in deep danger. One of the major arteries in my Christian life is exposed and under threat because whatever I say about being saved by grace in that moment, I'm grabbing hold of Christianity as a way to take control of my own future and to make myself into the thing that I want to be. There's no faith in that. There's no real trust in Christ. There's no surrender to his vision of what I should be. Whether I mean to or not, muscle memory alone is navigating me back from seven habits of highly effective Christians to a dependency on works, not faith. It has the skin of Christianity, but underneath it's not Christianity at all. In the passages that we read this morning, we came to another famous Pauline contrast between slavery and freedom. But here too, we settle for simplistic readings that sidestep the heart of the challenge, don't we? God is pro-liberty. God is anti-slavery. These texts are here for Christians who work with recovering addicts or who campaign against people trafficking or poverty, but probably not for me. And yet we fail to see that Paul has his hands on another major artery of the Christian life here. Slavery is the image he uses in Galatians to describe our entire experience outside Christ. The thoughts we thought, the goals we strove for, and it's that slavery that we slide back into so easily. Let's say I'm watching a documentary about some famous missionary, and I'm, I'm struck by the story of her call into ministry. This lady went to a meeting, felt a sudden overwhelming sense of concern for the country where she ultimately went to serve. She knew with certainty in that moment that God was speaking to her and setting her apart for this work. And so from that point forward, whatever the obstacles, she never wavered in her conviction that God had laid his hand on her life and sent her there. This is a wonderful story, all the more wonderful for being true. And it's got great potential to stretch me and inspire me. But just like those seven habits of highly effective Christians, it's also got great potential to be misappropriated by someone who lives in this culture, hasn't it? As I hear this story of this woman, I find myself asking, why has this never happened to me? 
Why haven't I ever known the presence and the calling of God with that kind of emotional intensity? And then the problems really start. Because since I was as small as small, the world that I live in has been shouting at me, indoctrinating me with the belief that the products and the relationships and the hopes that come with emotional intensity are the only things that are real. And that if they lack that emotional intensity or it begins to fade, they're no longer real. That's why I start to doubt that I'm really a Christian at all. And the freedom of knowing that Christ knows what's best for me, the freedom of trusting him to complement the truth of the gospel in my life with the emotional experiences that he chooses, the freedom to pay attention to what he is doing in my life, even though it might be quiet and need some discerning, all of that is snuffed out and choked in an instant by the suffocating slavery of believing that what I feel is the measure of what is true. Whatever I say about being saved by grace, in that moment, Christianity is slipping through my fingers because I'm judging it by the standards of the world around me. There's no faith in that, is there? There's no trust in Christ. There's no surrender to his vision of what I should be. Whether I mean to or not, muscle memory alone is navigating me from the experience of this wonderful missionary lady to profound despair. It has the skin of Christianity, but underneath, it's not Christianity at all. Later in the letter, Paul comes to a third major contrast, this time between flesh and spirit. In chapter 5, verse 16, he says, Live by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. And then jumping on to verse 22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. This is all good, familiar stuff. But the application demanded by the context is just as uncomfortable as where we've just been. Paul is responding to an audience who are desperate for a list of do's and don'ts here. That's what their religious teachers used to give them before they knew Jesus. A list of rituals to fulfill. A list of magic words to say. But now Paul is coming at them with a plea to think differently. Paul isn't going to tell them what to do because he knows if he tells them what to do, they'll use it as a tool to try to make God give them what they want in response. So it's striking, isn't it? He doesn't tell them how to be good. He tells them what life will look like when goodness is already at work in them. He doesn't tell them how to get the Spirit. He tells them what life will look like when the Spirit has already come. And we need to treat ourselves and each other with this same sensitivity. It's an amazing privilege to be part of a church community like this one, maybe part of a family at home that places a priority on prayer. God calls us to this. Many of us live lives where prayer is a significant part of our daily walk. We have check marks against some of these boxes. But those check marks hold risks for people shaped by the kind of culture that surrounds us here in the modern Western world, don't they? Because if we're not aware of it, if we don't fight it, we can find ourselves expecting God to answer, not because we believe that he calls us to pray or that we're just observing the effects of something that he's doing among us, but because somewhere deep down at the back of our minds, we think those check marks make blessings inevitable. We think check marks oblige God to give us what we want. 
Does that sound familiar this morning? Whatever we say about being saved by grace, in that moment, our faith has more of the flesh about it than it does of the Spirit. The distinctive mark of the Spirit is that He always points us to Christ. But if we think answer prayer is all about us, in the end, how much of His Spirit's work can we really claim? Whether I mean to or not, muscle memory alone is navigating me from a good and godly call to pray for our church or for the spread of the gospel in our area to the toxic old world that I came from where good things don't just come to those who wait, but to those who manipulate. It has the skin of Christianity, but underneath it's not Christianity at all. So what are we learning here? With each of these contrasts, works and faith, slavery and freedom, flesh and spirit, it's not enough just to say that we named Christ as our Savior at some point in the increasingly distant past and that we trusted in His grace alone then to rescue us from our godless, thankless lives now. If we're really His sons and daughters today, we've got to be living by faith today, living in freedom today, living by the Spirit today. Jesus didn't die so you could fake being a Christian like a pig in a ball gown. He died to transform you into the living, breathing person that gown was designed to fit. But as we finish, I think Paul would also want us to pause here and be careful what we do even with these encouragements and thoughts. Because if your heart is anything like mine, you'll be tempted to hear even this as a way to control your spiritual progress. If we can just master Paul's technique now, if we can just take care of the weak members of the congregation like Paul did, if we can discern the magnetic pull of the assumptions of our culture and resist them, we will have the keys to spiritual acceptance and endurance. Good for us. That comes so easily, right? But it's all wrong. Look down with me at the section of the letter that immediately preceded the passage that we read, starting at chapter 4, verse 3. When we were under age, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But then, but when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, and you are, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Thinking that we can control the future by our own efforts is the rotten core of the slavery he's talking about here. And that applies to controlling it by mastering new spiritual insights that we hear at church on Sunday morning, just as much as it applies to control it by buying new stuff or maintaining a healthy bank balance. The gospel is utterly antithetical to that whole kind of logic. God sent his son born of a woman, born under exactly these kinds of burdens, to redeem us from them. And the fruit of his work on our behalf is adoption. As sons and daughters, we don't have to take the future into our own hands because we're loved by a father who holds the future in his hands and who is utterly worthy of our trust. The mark of authentic sonship and daughterhood here in Galatians is coming to a place where we can lay down that whole desire for control at his feet, knowing it's a burden that he alone can bear, and that we are already the people that he made us to be in Christ. 
There's no need for us to invest our time and effort trying to dodge the thunderbolts that the future may bring. There was never any point in that anyway. Jesus was hit by the thunderbolt that really matters, the thunderbolt that we really deserved. And now whatever future God chooses for us, we can rest completely confident in the loving purposes that stand behind it. Whatever he brings, whether we would choose it or not, it will be the tool that he has chosen to form his image in us. We don't pray our prayers or seek to make special gestures in an effort to force God to stand by us and protect our wealth anymore. We cry out, Abba Father, knowing that our lives are safe in his hands. Heavenly Father, so much of the Christian life involves coming to you and asking for a kind of brain transplant. Um, This is so wired into the way that we are built. Our culture is completely constructed around the idea that we can make the future give us what we want. And Lord God, we confess to you that actually a large part of our Christianity has that as its underlying mechanics, and we're sorry. Because what we've heard from you here this morning is that you're not that God. That's what you save us from, not what you save us for. You made us, you remade us in Christ to be free. To know that you are God, to not to try and have to be God ourselves, to trust you with our future, to know that you are working for good in every breath of each day, whether we understand it or not, whether we would welcome it or not, whether it is or isn't what we would choose. Help us, Lord God, this morning to name you as the God that we trust. We pray that you would help us pray that you would change and shape us. Help us think your thoughts after you. Help us to live with your eyes on ourselves and on your world. In Jesus' name, amen. Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Lord God, we thank you that what's written here is not an end point. Paul wrote this to the Galatians in such a messed up place because there was a way forward from here by the power of your spirit. As we hear these words, many of us know you, or rather are known by you, and yet we're asking ourselves, how is it that we're turning back to this garbage? Free our hearts and lives from this slavery. Help us to stand as men and women of God who trust in God and not in themselves and in their ability to make you do what they think is right. Lord, we don't think what we think is right is right. We think what you think is right is right. Let that blessing fall on us. May it change our hearts and lives. And may it bless those that we know.
for Jesus' sake. Amen. Do take a seat. It's been great worshiping with you. See you next week.